But we are so glad that you're here. We're also very glad to be welcoming uh, Mark Ginolette. Uh, he's a professor at Beeson Divinity School here in town. He's also the lay canon theologian at Cathedral Church of the Advent downtown. I'm sure a number of you will recognize him from either of those places. Um, Mark was uh, one of my professors and also uh, my mentor, Josh Hausen, our associate pastor of administration, his mentor and professor at Beeson. And uh, we, we've, I've known Mark now for 10 years uh, when I uh, first started at Beeson, he, he was working and making money the whole time. I've just been paying money there the whole time. Uh, so he's, he's one in that scenario. Um, but but I, I have loved my time at Beeson for a, a number of reasons, and, and one of the top reasons is definitely Mark Ginolette. And so join me in welcoming Dr. Mark Ginolette. Do I need a... F- oh, I'm on. <laughs> Okay. I think if you'd have told me 15 years ago that in 15 years you're going to get to go to a church event and talk about Jesus in a brewery while you're drinking beer, I don't think I could have conceived of that. But this may be the pinnacle shining moment of my life. <laughs> so I'm very glad to be here. Let me, let me begin this with prayer. I'm sitting and feeling real weird about that. I'm sure I'll get up eventually. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we come together tonight, Lord, we do so because we have questions and we want to know you. And we live in a world that's torn and fragmented. And we live in our own bodies. We have internal conversations and we know we're torn and we're fragmented. And we're in desperate need of you. And Lord, whatever we're doing tonight together, we ask that by the power of your spirit and the gracious giving of your own self, that you would open our minds and our hearts to just glimpse into who you are and that we would walk away, Lord, changed and encouraged and hopeful. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we're talking tonight about Jesus, and we're talking about Jesus in a particular way that has to do with the significance of what Jesus is doing now. When I was asked to do this topic, I don't know, whenever I was, um, I was immediately encouraged by it because There are certain aspects of the Christian faith and of Christian theology that over the past 10 years have been profoundly impacting and significant in my own spiritual formation and journey, and this is one of them. So speaking into this will be, in a sense, a bit of an expose of what God has been doing in my own heart and my own mind as it relates to thinking about Jesus and thinking about God and how thinking about what's beyond our rational capabilities, how that has an impactful and a significant influence on the ways in which we live and move in this world. And I'll tell you why. I mean, I grew up a Christian. Some of you have as well. Others of you, and I recognize this crowd will probably be a diverse crowd. Some of you are newer Christians. Some of you are 
Christians by name all throughout your years, and now you're having some sort of internal revival that's going on. Some of you are seekers and figuring this whole Christian thing out and whether or not you're going to jump into the deep end of the pool. And I, I recognize that, you know, I don't, I don't know most of you, and I realize you're probably all over the map. I, I grew up never knowing really a time that I didn't go to church and love Jesus. I mean, that's just kind of the world I, I grew up in. My, my parents are here tonight. Um, Mom, only one beer tonight. I want you to know that. Yeah, come on. Um, <clears throat> my mother doesn't drink beer. That's a bit of a joke. Um, but I grew up in that world, and I'm grateful for that. But I think I had a sort of conception of my spiritual existence as, you know, you, you ask Jesus into your heart, you make some sort of confession of faith, and then you go about kind of trying to figure it out. Um, you're looking for something that has to do with the ways in which you are primarily at the center of what it means to be a Christian because Jesus gave you salvation, but as far as your Christian existence goes, you've got, I've got to actualize that. I've got to make that happen. So I know that the gospel got me onto the Christian train, the good news that Jesus lived for me and he died for me. We're going to talk more about that tonight. But the, the good news about the very basic rudimentary aspects of what it means to be a Christian, I, I knew that that got me onto the gospel train. But now that I'm on the train, you know, I can put the gospel ticket back in my pocket and look for the drink cart and the candy cart and try to figure out now, now what's, the, what's the real thing about this being a Christian. And so there, a lot of effort goes into that. A lot of internal navel-gazing. A lot of a lot of angst, and, and probably rightly so, frankly, as we go through our various Christian lives. But I guess in my early 20s and maybe mid-20s, and then probably in the most significant way, my late 20s, early 30s, when I was starting at Beeson, actually, um, the significance of the fact that Jesus is, um, not just that Jesus was, I could picture that. I, wa- I knew the Zeffirelli uh, King of the Jews movie that we would watch during Christmas time, I mean Easter time. And by the way, if you've never seen Zeffirelli's, is it, am I, I got that wrong. Jesus of Nazareth, uh, King, well, what is the Zeffirelli Jesus movie? Jesus of Nazareth. Awesome. Netflix that thing. It is a great show. Um, the guy who plays Jesus dies like six months later. It's all ooey, eerie kind of stuff. Anyway, um, I knew that Jesus was, and I understood that. And I knew that that was important. In other words, it's important for our salvation, for our redemption as Christians, that Jesus walked around and kicked up dust. And it's important that Jesus ate falafel and pita. I don't know if he ate that, but whatever they ate back then, right? I mean, I knew that was important. And, um, but I, I didn't know how to conceptualize and internalize the significance that Jesus of Nazareth, that self-same individual that kicked up dust on the Palestinian roads of the first century world, that he is now, and that he exists now. And, and this might blow your hair back, if you've got any left, I've got a little, um, and he's, for lack of a better term, corpuscular now. He's got a body now. Jesus is human now. And it matters. It matters. And the significance of that for me in my own spiritual life, I began to take on um, various shades of meaning. 
And one of the, I think one of the more important aspects of this for me is a recognition that humanity and what it means to be human matters to God. It matters to him. In fact, it matters to God so much that in the eternal counsel of his own will, where God, self-sustained in his own internal relationship with himself, in need of nothing else. And you do know that about God, right? I mean, there's some of these old poems. I can't remember the name of the poem, but there's a poem that goes something to the effect of, and God and his you know, eternal identity was lonely, and so he created man so that he could have fellowship. I mean, man, that's just first-class hogwash, right? I mean, God was never lonely. There's never any gap in God's being that needed to be filled. There's nothing that we brought to that. And so... Um, God didn't create humanity because he needed something. He created humans and then set on a course to redeem us because of his own good pleasure, because of his love. And in his own eternal counsel, and there's a lot of this I realize that gets mysterious, and you can ask all the questions you want to in Q&A time, and I'll just go, I don't know. Right? Um, but there's a lot of mystery around this. But we know that God made a decision in his own eternal identity to be a God for you and for me, to be a God for humanity, for us. In other words, the incarnation or Jesus becoming human was not an afterthought in God's eternal identity, but was integral to what God understood himself to be in time and in space to redeem a humanity, to redeem a people for himself. So when Jesus steps into the world, now think about this. This is the theology talk. I hope you, you, can, I hope you knew what you're getting into. Right? Um, but if you, if you think about this, I mean, it's very significant to claim that there was never a time when the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, did not exist. Matter of fact, a lot of theological debate and identification and differentiation took place all throughout the early church into the fourth century. And the fourth century is a pinnacle century that was wrestling with what does it mean for God to be three in person yet one in divine essence? I'm not going to go down this road because I know our, our brains will start bleeding out of our ears. But that, that whole Trinitarian discussion, very important. So there was never a time when Jesus, in the sense of the second person of the Trinity, the divine son of God, was not, never a time. I'm, I'm in the Anglican tradition. Some of you may be familiar with the Anglican tradition. Um, we, I, don't, I don't know if you do this at Redeemer or not, but we say the Gloria uh, Patri, I guess is the technical term, in our liturgy regularly. And that is, glory to the Father and to the Son. You, some of you may know this. And to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever will be, world without end, amen. Beautiful. We set that to music. We say it back and forth antiphonally all throughout our liturgy. <clears throat> in the 4th century, that was the Notre Dame fight song for Orthodox Christians. I mean, we, we put it in very beautiful floral settings now in our liturgy, but for the 4th century, that was Go Get Em Boys song. Because across the aisle, there, there was people like Arius saying, there was a time when he was not. He's very important, he's very significant, he's semi-divine, but he's not just like the Father. So th these were very important theological matters that frankly might seem arcane and esoteric to us, but they're at the heart of the Christian faith. I mean, this stuff's very important. So there was, a, there was never a time when the second person of the Trinity did not exist, but there was a time 
when we're thinking about it from our conception of time and space, when he wasn't human. That's very important. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians chapter 2 says, being in the form of God, co-equal with God, sharing in the divine essence of God. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, but he lowered himself taking on the form of a servant and coming into the likeness of human flesh, of humanity, even unto the point of the death of a cro- on the cross. So he took on human flesh for us. And that is significant. And, and by the way, I don't know if you conceive of this way. This is why you're, this, this touches a real neurologic point for me. But I don't know if you conceive it this way, but Jesus is taking on humanity and becoming a man, a human, that had a beating heart and a spirit and flesh and walked around this world and felt hunger and knew what it was to need to take a nap and to get away for a little bit and refresh himself. All the things that we think about being human, your salvation and my salvation, my eternal security rests on the fact that Jesus came to redeem humanity by taking humanity onto himself. And here's the part that's all about what we're doing tonight. And the part that I just find so absolutely fascinating to this point, to to tonight, is that when Jesus raises from the dead and then ascends to the Father, and admittedly, that raises all kinds of wild questions like, why exactly did you have to leave? You ever thought about that? It's like things were just going so well. I mean, they killed you, now you're alive, right? Well, why did you have to leave? But there he goes, he's gone. But in his leaving He didn't leave his body. You realize this right. His body is now in the throne room of God, wherever that exists. And I know we live in an Einsteinian world and the flip side of reality and all this. It's not out there. It's the flip side of it. Whatever that is, wherever that throne room of God is, Jesus is there and he's there as a man because he's elevated our humanity. He's elevated humanity into the very life of God himself. He's elevated our humanity. That's why Jesus is the humanizing human. He's a human, and he cares about humanity, and our redemption rests on that. Can I press this just a little bit more? The other part about this that I think I find so fascinating is, I also understood from my childhood on, beer break. (laughs) There'll be more of those, don't worry. I also understood from my childhood on, I'm not in my notes yet, but I'm going to get to them. Um, I understood from my childhood on that Jesus died for my sins. I mean, that's evangelical Christianity 101, isn't it, right? Jesus died for my sins. He went to hell for me so that I wouldn't have to go. But again... Another angle on this, given the fact that Jesus is the humanizing human, not only did Jesus die for me, Jesus lived for me. He lived for me. You see, we run a real danger when we separate the work of Jesus, his atoning work, the fact that he accomplishes salvation for us on the cross. We run into real dangers when we separate the work of Jesus from the person of Jesus. Jesus lived life for me. Can I give you a fancy technical term for that? His life was a vicarious humanity for you and for me. He died in our place. 
He lived in our place. There's an enormous amount of gospel hope in this for you and for me. The gospel hope is that Jesus, he believes the way that we should believe. He obeys the way in which we should obey. He gets baptized and he comes out of the waters and the heavens break open and a dove falls on top of him. And then God announces from heaven that this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Matthew's gospel says something bizarre. It's really kind of hard to get our minds around what Matthew meant by this. But he says, and he did this in order to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, I don't think I really understand the full implications of what that phrase in Matthew means. But I think part of it is when Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, he identifies with sinners like you and me. He's fulfilling all righteousness. He's living my life for me. He's, he's being baptized for me. He's fulfilling the law for me. He's obeying his father for me. He's, he fears and his piety the way in which it should be operating in, in human existence. He's the humanizing human. Not only did he die my death, but he lived, lived my life. And now he stands before the throne of God ever there eternally presenting our humanity to him. Now, I got to read some Bible to you because this is a lot of chatter. Um, can I read these verses to you in light of everything that we just said? Maybe you'll hear Colossians 3, 1 to 4 in a new way. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, let me, let me say that again. Because you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Can I rephrase that in light of what we've just been saying? Your humanity has been elevated into the very humanity of Jesus, and it's hidden safely in the very eternal life of God. Verse 4, so when Christ, who is your life, <laughs> isn't that a great turn of phrase? By the way, Colossians, two thumbs up. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, here's a funny phrase, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I want to read it one more time. Put your mind around this. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You know what I think Paul's saying there? It is profound. It's metaphysical. It's complicated. It's philosophical. It's theological. I mean, any ways in which you can think about putting to work the faculties of our minds and our hearts to think about God and how that intersects with our lives, Paul's doing that right here. He's a great theologian. And what he's saying is when Christ appears at that final day, at the resurrection of the dead, then guess who's going to appear with him? You. Now, now, there's more to this. The, the authentic, true you. Uh, that, that means, again, we're gonna, I know we're scooby gear a little bit here, but that means that your true self, if you're a Christian, and you've confessed your faith in the Lord Jesus, and have followed him in the waters of baptism so that he's claimed you as your own, if that's who you are, 
What Paul is telling you is that your primary and fundamental identity, the very core of your being and what it means for you to be you, is not really the you that's here tonight. It's the you that's been elevated into the life of God in Christ because you are safely in him. So that when he is revealed, guess who else gets revealed? You do too. The true you, the authentic, the humanized you that Jesus has elevated into himself because he lived your life and he died your death. Let me put it another way, and I know that my kids can't wait, and my wife can't wait, and I can't wait either. I can't wait to meet the real me, right? Because I know the real me now. I got to live with that guy, right? And you have to live with you too. It's the funny thing about those of you who are in relationships. You know what it's like. We have all these ideals for what we want our relationships to be like. The only problem is we're involved, right? I mean, we're sinners, and we're not going to escape that in this whole world. We are going to be, I mean, if I can use Luther's terms, we're going to be fully righteous because of Christ's imputed work, and we're going to be fully sinners until the day we breathe our last. Welcome to it. But at that day, we're going to meet our true selves, your true identity, who you really are in Christ. You know what that does? You know what the implications of this are? This shapes fundamentally how we understand who we are, ourselves. Do you realize the implications that this has for your understanding of the self? And my goodness, if we are in a time in our world on the far side of modernity that is struggling to come to terms with selfhood, authentic humanity, what it means to be human, we are in it right now. It is all over the place right now. And for a Christian, what Paul is telling us is, you want to come to terms with selfhood, finding your authentic self, your true self, so that you can actualize that self in the real world? You want to find that person? You take a long and hard look at Jesus of Nazareth because your life is in him. That's who you are. Well, that was introduction. You should be very nervous. The question that we want to raise now is, if that's what Jesus, this whole notion about him being a fully, fully human now, bringing that into divine life, so then the question is, what is Jesus doing now? That's the title of our whole talk tonight. And I want to talk about this from a few, from a few angles. Number one, I want to talk about Jesus as our priest. He's a priest, and he's a priest for you and for me now. That is, if I can borrow from a theologian who's dead, and they tend to be the better ones, um, John Calvin. Calvin says we need to recognize that Jesus does not sit idly in heaven. He's not inactive. I mean, you've seen enough of these far side cartoons or maybe New Yorker cartoons to recognize that you know, the views of heaven and the spiritual life beyond can be um, well, they can be portrayed in very boring ways. You know, I remember seeing one far side cartoon where they had two guys with a halo sitting on a cloud, and the caption was, if I'd have known it was going to be this boring, I'd have brought a magazine, right? I mean, it's, it's, I mean it's, 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 that's, not the, that's, that's not a good portrayal. What does Jesus do now? I think it's very important for us to understand first and foremost that Jesus operates now for us as, again, the one who has elevated humanity into the life of God. He operates as our priest he operates as our mediator. He intercedes for you and for me now. I want to read to you from Hebrews, and this will be hard for me to navigate a little bit here, but if I'm 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. I want you to, uh, 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 I've been thinking a lot about Hebrews lately. Verse 10, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing many children to glory should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting. He goes on to say at the end of chapter 4 of Hebrews, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, what's all this about? This priest, we, don't, we don't live in a world of priests. I was thinking about this recently. We don't live in a world of sacrifice. We don't live in a world that's bloody. Um, we go down to Publix or the Western or wherever you go and your chicken's under cellophane. Uh, your beef is all nice and dried out. You know, there's no dripping blood. We just, we live in a very sedentary world. My, my brother-in-law has a couple of pigs. Um, I'm invested in one of these pigs financially, actually. Um, out in a little, uh, not in Pell City, but somewhere near Pell City. I get these small towns in Alabama all confused. But um, it will be a bloody affair around November, I think. All right. But that's not my normal existence. I mean, I don't normally live that way. So we don't live in a world of priests. And that's all very strange to us. But it's the world of the Bible. And as we're drawn into that world, we come into a book like Leviticus. And for any of you who've made a commitment to read through the Bible, you know, one of those New Year's resolutions, I'm going to go to the gym three days a week, and I'm going to read my Bible. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe it goes well. Uh, and if you hold to those resolutions, God bless you. you I admire you deeply. Um, I, you know, but you maybe get to Leviticus, and you're like, done. I, I gave that a go. Um, Genesis was interesting. Exodus, a lot of twists and turns. Leviticus, I'm out. Right, that's, I'm done. Um, but you think about what's going on in Leviticus. There's blood in the tabernacle or the temple all the time. And on that high day of Yom Kippur, you had the priest would come into the Holy of Holies and he would take the blood of a goat. There are two goats involved in the Yom Kippur ritual, a, day, a yearly ritual, the high day of the Jewish calendar, and he would take blood into the Holy of Holies, and he'd smear blood on the corners of the altar for two reasons. Number one, he did so to alleviate the burden of sin on the people, to lift the sins off of them so that they didn't bear the guilt of their sin anymore, and number two, to purify the temple itself. It was an act of ritual purification so that then people could worship God cleanly again, because sin was both a presence and a power. And sin in an aggregate way throughout the year built up and so polluted the temple that it needed to be washed and clean. And then guess what? The next day after Yom Kippur, day number one of 365, and we'll build it up again, and we'll see you next year at the same time. But there was another goat that you had there at the Yom Kippur. And this goat was a goat that they would, I don't even know what all this is about. We, we don't. We just don't know. But they would put their hand on this goat. In some ritual act, and I think what that act symbolizes was we're putting our sin onto the back of this goat, and then they'd send this goat out into the desert to meet what the book of Leviticus identifies as Azazel. 
I don't know what Azazel is. People will give you some sort of argument that maybe it's a demon, maybe it's a word for the wilderness. We're not sure what Azazel is. We, but I think we can be sure that we're glad that that goat found out and not us. Right, that's the point. Right, you go out and find Azazel. So what do you have? <laughs> you had having Yom Kippur, you had both the presence and the power of sin was being removed. Both, the presence and the power of sin. And what do we have with Jesus? This is what makes the, the, the person and work of Jesus so profoundly beautiful. And the book of Hebrews, another two thumbs up book, to kind of give you a sense of why Jesus acts as our priest. He is both priest and victim at the same time. He is both high priest mediating between humanity and God the Father, but he's also the goat. He's also the victim removing the presence and the power of sin. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, to read in Hebrews and in the Gospels that when Jesus is crucified, he goes outside the camp. I mean, he's going out into the wilderness to meet Azazel and to defeat him, and he does so permanently. And unlike any priest before Jesus, when Jesus makes that atoning ritual, Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, when he does that, he sits down in the Holy of Holies. No high priest in the Aaronic line ever sat down. Matter of fact, truth be told, those Aaronic priests that had to go in couldn't, probably couldn't wait to get out, right? But not Jesus. Jesus goes in, he makes atonement, and he sits down. And what Hebrews tells us, and this is why it's so poignantly present in our spiritual existence right now, is that that high priest who went in and removed the presence and the power of sin permanently and effectually for his people, that self-same high priest, he's someone who knows what it's like to be human. He learned obedience in the school of suffering. It says in another place in Hebrews that his prayers were heard because of his fear and piety. What strange things to say about Jesus. His prayers were heard because of his fear and piety. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus was being made morally perfect. He was morally perfect already. But what it meant was when Jesus went into the school of suffering to be human and to know what human suffering is like, he became vocationally perfect, a priest fitting for you and for me who can pray to the Father and in praying to the Father can do so in such a way that he's filled with knowledge and can say, I understand. I know what it's like. I'm going to intercede for them. Because I'm a priest who knows what it's like to suffer and to be tempted and to be human. And that's why Hebrews tells us to come into his presence boldly because he understands. Those are terms we toss around rather cheaply, aren't they, in in various contexts. And most of you, I assume, are savvy enough in various moments of suffering or sorrow in people's lives not to say things like, I understand. I mean, I, I don't. I've got a friend right now battling pancreatic cancer. Um, It's not looking good for the long term. I I don't, you know, I'm praying for you. I love you. I don't understand. That's a a pool I've never swum in before. But Jesus understands. That's what our our priest does. And here's a more lower, the lower flying point that I want to sort of emphasize here is. And what Jesus does as our high priest is he prays for you and for me. He's praying I don't know if you've spent time in John's gospel. It's just so beautifully constructed, uh, the book itself. It's it's artistically and literarily. John's a great gospel. What does Jesus do in John chapter 14? This is referred to, John chapter 14 to John chapter 17, as scholars refer to it as the farewell discourse. 
Another maybe not so fancy way of describing it is John 14 to 17 is Jesus breaking the bad news to his disciples. I'm leaving, right? And they're like, what? You're really leaving? He's like, yeah, I'm leaving. And he tells them, but I'm going to go, chapter 14. I'm going to make a place for you, okay? And then I'm going to come back for you, all right? Uh, And then chapter 15, he tells them, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. So abide in me, and, you, and I'll abide in you. Um, and when I send the Spirit, here's a verse that's kind of wild. You'll do more things than even I did. That's a profound statement. Then he tells them in John 16, oh, and by the way, they're going to hate you when I'm gone. Uh, so it's not going to be great. Uh, I'll be gone. There's going to be real loss. It's going to be sorrowful. I'm going to be away. They hated me, so don't be surprised. They're going to hate you too. Like, oh, goodness. And, and, and so you have all this sort of building here, all going toward the cross, And do you know how the farewell discourse ends? The farewell discourse ends with John 17, which is referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's, um, how do I describe this? John 17 is holy ground. I think John 17 is take the shoes off your feet kind of place in the Bible. Because we see various times in Jesus' life where he breaks away and he prays. And we even have short prayers that Jesus makes. We even have a Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches us how to pray. But what you have in John 17 is unique. We actually get the curtain pulled back, and we get to see an inter-Trinitarian communication between God the Father and God the Son by the associative and powerful work of the Holy Spirit. We see God talking to himself in John 17. And it's a holy moment. It's a sacred moment. Jesus, after he said all these things, it says in John chapter 17, after he said all of this, what's all this? All that farewell discourse stuff. He lifts up his eyes and he prays. And he prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And the shocker of the high priest of prayer is, Jesus is praying for you and for me. For people that will believe on account of the words of the apostles. And he's praying for us. And then he goes on and he tells them the last verse in his prayer. And I'm going to reveal to them your name. They're going to know who you really are. What does that mean? Well, when they see me hanging on a cross and redeeming the world, they're going to know what God is really like. I would love to kind of dive into the high priestly prayer and look at it. But just on the surface... What the high priestly prayer is showing us is not just a historical activity of Jesus. I do believe that's true. But not just a historical activity of Jesus. It's showing us what Jesus, the exalted Lord, does even now. And what is he doing? He's praying. I mean, honestly, this is, this is, I told you earlier that this had a profound impact on me spiritually in my own walk. This is it right here. The very simple claim That Jesus, right now, before the Father, by the Spirit, is praying, and he's praying for you, and he's praying for me. He's praying for Redeemer Community Church, and he's praying for you, and he understands what it means to be human. And he recognizes that you need a Redeemer, and he knows that you need a mediator, someone who will stand between you and the Father. He knows that, and he's praying for you. Now, I'll just tell you, I mean, over, over the last, some of you are prayer warriors. God bless you, right? I just love it. I mean, for me, prayer is a continual struggle of my spiritual existence. It is. 
Um, I, I, you all had Graham Cole here, I think, at some point in time. The Australian guy talks real cool. Um, he, he was a colleague of mine at Beeson. I, and one of the things that Graham said one time that I found actually life-giving is, stop praying the ways in which you think you should pray and pray the ways you can. I was like, oh, that's really helpful. I, mean, I got four kids, you know, this whole notion about, you know, me, Jesus, and a pot of coffee early in the morning. It's like, I've got kids running around yelling and changing diet. I mean, it's just, yeah, right, right. Um, so, you know, you pray the way you can. But what I have found very encouraging and helpful to me is to recognize that Jesus is praying for me. And he's praying for my kids. And he's praying for my family. And he's praying for my church. And there have been multiple times in my own life when the simple prayer that comes off of my lips is, in moments of crisis or moments on the run, Jesus, please pray for us. Please. And can I give you just a, little, a couple more things about this? Oh, 10 more minutes. A couple more things about this. This should give you an enormous amount of confidence. That's not my terms. That's Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 2 terminology. That should give you an enormous amount of confidence when you pray. Um, some of you are in small groups, I imagine, right? Does Redeemer a small group church? Yeah, so some of you are in small groups. And I imagine for some of you, the thing that is the most scary or fearful about being in a small group is, I think they might want me to pray in front of the rest of them. And I'm going to tell you why some of you feel that way. Because you've heard some of the people in your church get up behind a, a microphone and pray these prayers that are so eloquent and the way they can turn a phrase. And you kind of have to peek your eye open to make sure you're still on earth. And you're like, wow, you know, what an experience. I could never do it, right? I'll just keep my mouth shut. Let them do all that stuff, right? Can I tell you something about this? Again, it's been helpful to me. I've had the experience too. And what's been helpful to me is, you know what? When you're asking someone to jump to the moon, we're talking about communicating with God. When you ask somebody to jump to the moon, I know that LeBron James can jump higher than I can. A lot higher. But it's still the moon, right? I mean, it's a long way. In other words, um, that's a bad, bad illustration. <laughs> but um, what I mean by that is, what I mean by that is, God, God's not impressed with our ability to turn a phrase. He's not impressed with our ability to get it all right. I mean, just think about that sweet woman that gives a mite. Or the, the, fair, the publican who's at the temple who says, Lord, have mercy. And they're honored for this because of the sincerity of their heart. You know what I find so encouraging about knowing that Jesus prays for me is that he takes my prayers, Romans chapter 8, my groanings, and he, this isn't very profound or very, doesn't phrase very well, but he cleans it up and he presents it to the Father by the Spirit in the way in which it's supposed to be presented. And the great news about that is you just go ahead and pray whatever you want. You let your heart overflow in prayer to the Lord. Because you know what? He's going to take it, and he's going to present it to the Father. And in those moments, in the words of the famous American theologian Willie Nelson, in those moments when you're too sick to pray, it's one of my favorite Willie Nelson songs, great song. When you're too sick to pray, um, he's praying for you. Well, that was point one of four. Um, I'll fly through these real fast. What else do we want to say tonight? 
Um, two things, and then we'll stop. What else is Jesus doing now? You know what else he's doing? He's feeding us. I'm going to talk to you Christians out here now. This is, for, this, is an in, this is a family talk right now. I don't know how you're trying to have your spiritual experience. I don't know where you're looking for it. But one of the things that I think I have found to be very encouraging for me and shaping and life-giving is to recognize that I need to meet Jesus in the places where he tells me that he will meet me. I can try to fabricate places. I can try to create experiences. I can try to do all of that. But I need to go to the place where he tells me that he's going to be found. Because I want him. And because he's exalted to the Father. But by the power of the Spirit, and John Calvin's very good on this, he comes down to us again and again. And in his coming down, I want to meet Jesus. And where do, where do I meet him? Well, this is where the Reformed Presbyterian side of me comes out. We meet him in the means of the grace. We meet him in the preaching of the word, in the celebration of the sacraments, in prayer, in fellowship with other Christians, in the ordinary means of grace. Now, let me tell you, you might have an extraordinary experience, and I'm so happy for you. If Jesus shows up in the mirror while you're shaving, great. I mean, that's wonderful. It's never happened to me. You know, if that happens to you, wow, right? Um, but, you know, so God can do whatever God wants to do in revealing himself to you. And I've heard some crazy stories. Matter of fact, here's a story for you. We were interviewing a missions person at Beeson who was the head of the missions department at a very well-known Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And for those of you, you guys aren't Southern Baptists, are you? No. For those of you who know the Southern Baptist world, that's a rather conservative theological world, especially its current expression. And he said in the interview that in his work with Muslims, that he has not yet met one Muslim convert to Christianity in a Muslim world, that it did not occur because of some dream where Jesus showed up to that person. Not one. And that's from a very conservative, not charismatic kind of person. right? So God can do extraordinary things. I believe that. But I also know that God has given us specific places for us to meet him and to feed on him. And that is the preaching of the word, the celebration of the sacrament, Christian community, and prayer. So I just want to say, I mean, we're all hungry for Jesus. And I, he can do extraordinary things. But I think he calls us to meet him in the places where he is to be found. And that is the preaching of the word, the reading of his word, and the celebration of his sacraments together. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, one more thing, one more thing. You know what else Jesus is doing now? This is another thing that's kind of new for me, and at least in the way in which I'm thinking about it. He makes sure that the atoms on the most molecular level of our existence hold together so the world doesn't fall apart. <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> I'm, I don't know how to say it. Colossians chapter 1 the word, Jesus, was the means by which the world was created and is the means by which the world is sustained. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, In the former days he spoke by the prophets, but in the latter days he's spoken to us by the Son. And who is that Son? He's the very image of God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of all things. What does that mean? Well, what it means is, and I don't know how to put it all together. I, don't, I, I try to read some stuff on physics, but I don't know what it's talking about, Right? 
What, is, what, I, what I think the scriptures are claiming in a very non-scientific way, but in a profoundly realistic way is, on the basic level of existence, this created world is not just something that God set in motion and now is watching it from a distance, but it's by the very power of his word, by the power of his son, that our world holds together. Can I make it more practical for you? It's by the power of the creative word of God, Jesus himself, that the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico don't swallow Florida. It's very real. Genesis chapter 1, the creative power of the word was to separate the land from the water, to hold the water back. And it's the power of Jesus now to hold. Now, we could talk about this for the rest of the night. But the point of that is, your view of God, your view of the Trinity, your view of Jesus of Nazareth as the risen Lord and Son of Man, that's not just a view on your spiritual existence. That provides for you the lens for how you conceive of all of reality, all of it. I was a youth director, I may have shared this with you all in a different context, but I was a youth director at a church for five years. Um, I wasn't very good at it, to be honest, but I, I was. The whole water balloon camping stuff, I don't know, I was never good at that. Um, but I, I did like teaching the teens, and, and, and but part of my um, payment for my sins was we had a youth band. And they, we would do worship together, the youth band, and they would construct their own worship services, and I'd sit there and, you know, and he, you guys go get them. And, well, they sang one song. And I, I let them have a lot of freedom on this. Every once in a while I'd step in. I, I just can't take that one anymore. But, I, but I'd give them a lot. There was one, there was one song that they sang um, and if you all sing this, and if, th- if this is your favorite song, I'm sorry, right? <laughs> I didn't think about it. I'm sorry. But the song, the song went something like this. Um, the chorus went, I, want, I think it's called The Secret Place. I want to know you. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. You know that one? Mm-hmm. You all sing that at some, around some campfire at some point in your life. I know it. We'd sing that, and I... I was in seminary at the time and probably a little smug, right? So I get it. But I would nudge my wife and I would say, they can have all the touching and all the seeing they want. I'll have none of it. All right. You know why? I mean, people who have unmediated encounters with God in the Bible, those are not happy moments. Right? I mean, Isaiah, right? He sees the Lord and then he says, I'm dead. Right? That's true. You have, you have Uzzah in a moment of forgetfulness. He has an unmediated encounter with the Ark of the Covenant, and he's dead, right? Um, and just so you don't think that's Old Testament-y stuff, John I was on the Isle of Patmos, and he sees the risen Lord in all of his glory. And what does John do? He falls at his feet as if he were dead. And I would tell my wife and joke around with the teens as well, but it's quite important. My Christianity, I prefer mediated, <laughs> if you don't mind. I like the, of the mediated kind. And that's what Jesus is doing now. That's what he does now. He, he is holding the world together, but he's also praying for you. He's interceding for you. He's reminding the Father on your account that you're his. And that's how we're safe. That gives us confidence, and that's what gives us hope. So, Father, take these simple words and make them your own. We know we need you. 
And Lord, I, I pray for the person here tonight who just finds this whole talk so weird. It's just weird. Who, be, who believes this kind of stuff? It's foolish. You tell us in your word it's foolish. But you also tell us that the foolishness of humanity is your own wisdom on display. Give us the humility to believe that it's true and to believe that it's true for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm supposed to tell you we have 10 minutes, and please get drinks. All right. So the way that the Q&A works is uh, you ask questions, and then Mark's going to be answering them. It's kind of a simple format with that. Uh, just a quick reminder, we're going to be back here August 5th. I'll give you a reminder at the end. Hopefully you're, you're primed and ready for some great questions. Q&A now. Brian. So the question is, Jesus in his human form now, does he still have some sort of limitations related to his humanity? All right. Well, that, I mean, it's a good question, and it's a question that has been divisive since the 5th century. And, uh, I mean, the question is, and I, I don't want us to kind of go too far into this, but the question is, how do the natures, the humanity, and the divinity of Jesus relate to one another in the single subject? Now, that's at the core of an orthodox faith. It's called Chalcedonic faith. That's the Council of Chalcedon from the early 5th century that claimed that there's only one, per there's only one person, one subject, Jesus, but he's fully God and fully man. And what that means is we don't add verbs. We don't predicate the natures. So we don't say something like the humanity of Jesus did this while his divinity did that. We can't predicate the natures because they're not substances. We, we predicate the person. Now, some will say that the doctrine of Chalcedon, that was, or the, the formula that came out fully God, fully man, and a single subject, made, made things more confusing than it really did clarifying. And then when you get into the Reformation period, which is, I mean, this is my team now, and you sort of get into the Protestant Reformers, this is a big debate between the Lutherans and the Calvinists, on how do the natures relate to one another. For Calvin, it's pretty important that there are limitations in the, in the sense of the humanity of Jesus. And that's why, for someone like Calvin, when you're taking communion, that bread substantially remains bread and is not transubstantiated into the body of Jesus because that would run afoul of the humanity of Jesus as being located in a particular place. Um, whereas the Lutheran tradition, with more Catholic sensibilities, is more open to the natures influencing one another in such a way that the humanity of Jesus can be ubiquitous as well. So all to say, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm with Calvin on this. I think I'm sympathetic somewhat to the Lutheran idea on, on some levels. Um, in my tradition in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, um, Lutherans and Calvinists both get angry at it because it seems to be confused. It talks in both ways. Uh, and, and maybe that's the best path, I don't know. Um, but to say that particular issue that you're raising right there is a juggernaut of a theological problem that is talked about to this day. And, it's, and it's, a, it's, it's a division theologically that separates some denominational distinctives as well. And there's some sadness to this, I think. This is my sort of you know, ecumenical side coming out, I guess. 
When you think about what happened in the 16th century in, in Europe, especially in the Holy Roman Empire there in the central part of Germany, you know, Luther's up there in Wittenberg, and you have Bootser, who's in Strasbourg, and you have, uh, um, uh, 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 and, and um, why am I forgetting, uh, the Z guy. Zwingli, yes, sorry, that's embarrassing. Uh, Zwingli, who's in Bullinger, who are over in, in, in the, in the uh, western part of Switzerland. You know, there was such division over their understanding of the Eucharist. A common understanding of the gospel, but a division over their understanding of the Eucharist. And, you know, at that time, political and religious distinctions weren't really made. And that kept things politically complicated as well in this central part of, of Germany as Protestants did not really relate all that well to one another because of this issue. You blink and you're into the 17th century and now all of a sudden you're in the middle of the 30 years war that, you know, you know I, I've often sort of wondered in my own mind, you know, if people could have come together on this a little bit more, maybe, maybe some of that, hindsight's always wanted to, maybe some of that could have been avoided. So I, I think we need to have our theological distinctions. I think they're very important. I'm, I'm not one of, the, I'm not a least common denominator approach to these issues, but one has to recognize the limitations on, on our own understanding of some very complicated matters. And I think we can allow for some space, I'd imagine, on these views. What, yes, sir. Robert. Yep, it's, great. it's a great question. So the question is, what's the relationship between claims elsewhere in the Bible that understand the church or Christians themselves as acting as in a priestly function in relation to the unique character of Jesus' high priestly office? And I think the word that I want to use there is derivative. I mean, the, the priestly function that we have as Christians, our holy function as a, as a collected body that are priests, that we actually minister the, the, the grace and the presence of God to people in the world, that that is something that we do in a derivative sense underneath the lordship of our high priest. Um, so uh, maybe another analogy on this is <clears throat> someone asked J.R.R. Tolkien at one point in time, and if you've read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, I wanted to love that, by the way, and I, I read them. I, I just, I'm sorry. I, I wanted to. But I can appreciate um, the, the power of the mind that could create a world. Let I me mean, think what Tolkien did. He created a world and even a language. I, mean, I, mean, that's, that, I can understand why Tolkien looked at C.S. Lewis's you know, Narnia stuff and said, eh, whatever, you know, <laughs> you know, write your little books. You know, I've created a world, right? Um, so, I mean, I get that. But someone asked Tolkien, are you a creator? And his response was, there's only one creator. I'm a sub-creator. Um, so I think we want to live in the tension of affirming the unique character of the high priestly role that Jesus plays and understanding our role as organically related to that in a derivative sense because of our union with him. And I think that helps keep things related but distinct, which is really at the heart of what it means to do theology and to think about the Christian life and the Christian faith. We have to make distinctions between things that seem rather similar. Um, and the other, I mean, there, there are other portions of the Bible that are, you know, just, 
I don't have my mind around it yet. Colossians 1, 24, is that, is that the right verse? Where Paul says, you know, I bear in my body the wounds of Jesus and I continue his, you know, what was lacking in his own suffering. <sighs> you know, 2 Corinthians 4, I, I bear about in my body the death of Jesus. Um, Stephen is being stoned and, uh, um, and then Saul is on the road to Damascus and Jesus asks Paul, why he's persecuting him? Why are you persecuting me? You know, St. Augustine, the fifth, early 5th fifth century theologian from North Africa, you know, Augustine had a, a notion of the, of the church that he referred to as, the, as totus Christus, the total Christ. And that is he understood Jesus as the head, but the church is his body. And those two are organically related, the one to the other. You cannot have the one without the other. This is the total Christ. Um, so when we say things, I mean, we can say this in a very chick, you know, sort of campy way. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus. You know, that's got, that's got a great Christian bumper sticker or something like that. But it's actually, there's, there's, there's theological and biblical rationale behind a claim like that. Um, so, and I think, by the way, that's a little bit behind what Jesus meant when he said, we'll do greater things. Part of that is because of the limitations of his body. I mean, did Jesus go to Rome? You know, I mean, in other words, the, the power of the Spirit spread out through his people allowed the, the ministry of Jesus to be spread throughout the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's his body doing his work, all in organic relationship to the head. So I, I think thinking those sort of organic terms are important, but again, we want to make distinctions between those. His unique status cannot be, I get a little, maybe I'm saying more than I should. I do get a little bit nervous about when people start banding about the term, we do incarnational ministry, right? Um, and I think what they mean by that is we want to be embodied and present to a place like Jesus was. And the whole notion of being embodied and being in a place, I think I'm, I'm, is very, very important. But I get a little nervous when the incarnation gets predicated on that because that is, that is something unique in the life of God as it pertains to the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh. And I, I, so I get, a, you know, I want to I keep a distinction there between what we do in embodying and being present to people from Jesus and the significance of, and the uniqueness of his incarnational status. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that gets to what you're asking, but kind of. <laughs> Come by the house later, we'll talk. <clears throat> yes, ma'am, newly married. You know, I think we, we, don't, we can never really understand fully where we are. I was thinking about this recently, you know, um, in relationship to, I just finished a study on Hebrews with folks at Covenant Presbyterian, and I was, we were working through Hebrews chapter 11, and here you have this chapter that's talking about people getting sawn in half, and being raised from the dead, and being suffered and tortured for Jesus, and you know, I'm on my way to Avondale Park for baseball practice. It's like, that's so removed from my life. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, so I was thinking, how does something about the life of faith and the looking forward to the future promises of God intersect with my very normal existence in this buckle of a Bible Belt world that I live in? 
And it sort of dawned on me that I think the differences are in degree and not necessarily kind because we have our own cultural pressures as well that really I think more often than not we're not aware of. We're not conscious of them because we're in it. And you kind of have to look back to see things clearly. And I think the issue that you're raising here is one that sits right on one of the more complicated aspects of what it means to be living in the modern world as an American. Because part of that American sort of ideology is, and I am an American, I'm very thankful for my country, but part of the American ideology is a libertarian view of individual freedom and individual autonomy. I am me. I am my own person. I will authenticate myself. And that's sort of at the core of what it means to be a human. And I think the Christian faith is a real challenge to that. I think it is. And I think it's something that we'll, I have to struggle with, we struggle with. What it means to live in community, what it means to find my identity outside of myself and not by turning into myself, not by authenticating my true whoever I am, but being authenticated by the reality that something's happened outside of me and has moved toward me, so that the gospel shapes my understanding of my individuality and my selfhood and not um, individual autonomy and, and a kind of libertarian notion of freedom. Um, boy, these are, this is going to get tricky. But these are hard things when we live in a kind of God and country culture here in the South. You know, um, I go to my church on Sunday and I, you know, got my gun and, you know, I, I don't care about the guns. I'm just saying, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, sir, I love Jesus and, and, and I have a bumper sticker in my car that says, shoot them all, and let God sort it out. And, you know, I, I just, I, you know, we, get, we just have to think about these things. And, and I think what's happened to me, over, the, over some of the things that have happened this past week, right, in our, in our world, is to recognize that the church from the, from, the, from the New Testament's own compositional history until the current moment, the best thinkers in the Christian tradition have always wrestled with what is the relationship of the Christian to its, his or her culture? And where is our primary citizenship? And it's why the 5th century theologian Augustine, his, one of his classic works is the city of God. Here, Rome is falling. Well, that's not our primary home. That's not our primary citizenship. My primary citizenship is that I am already in another time and another place. I'm a Christian. And we live in the tension, I think, between being indigenous. We're planted in a place. I love it that you're here, your church, here, this, this brewery. And your church building's right there. I mean, that is so good because you're planting in a place and you're wanting to be indigenous to this place and minister to this place. It's wonderful. And we live in the tension between that and also recognizing that our real status is also pilgrims. This is not our place. We're waiting for another, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and I think we will live in that tension. And your question about true and authentic selfhood and what it means to be a self and an individual and how to sort through the morass of competing options that the e-channel is telling me and ESPN is telling me and whatever else you're watching is telling me and then what I'm reading in Scripture and learning from the history and the tradition of the church, that takes some real sorting out, I think. And I think it's a real challenge. And, I, and by the way, if we're not thinking about that, then we've doled ourselves into a sort of sleepless something or the other. I don't know. Um, so we, we've, got, we've got to think long and hard about that. I think about this as a dad. I really do. And I'm not good at it. I'm just not. 
But what is it that the world around me tells me makes a child successful? Academic success, social success, and athletic success. We want them to do those things. I want them to be a good athlete. I want them to get really good grades. And I want them to be socially liked by their peers so that they can achieve and be something. And none of those things in and of themselves are bad. I just spent a whole year this spring coaching baseball. Brian Johnson right here. I mean, you know, do it, you know. Um, so it's not, I'm not saying it's bad, but it's a real challenge to me as a dad to think, especially when your children might have a success in that area or even failure. Is that how the gospel is primarily understood as shaping what it is that my true hopes are for my children? What are my real hopes for them? It's just a challenge. And I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not going to the Colosseum tomorrow with Polycarp to get burned at the stake. I'm not. But I got to think about that tomorrow. You know, I don't know. Was that what you were asking? <laughs> that wasn't practical? Well, you know, I mentioned the means of grace. I mean, I don't, I don't take that lightly. I mean, it's, you know, going, go to church. And that's kind of a funny thing to say, but, you know, maybe I'm talking to the choir tonight, but being at church is really important. And it seems, sounds so simple, but going and being at a place where I'm with other Christians and I'm being, this is what we get to do when we go and worship together. Now, I don't know what you all, I've never been to church at Redeemer. It's kind of weird for all the times I've been around you. I've never been to your church before, actually, in the service. So I don't know what you do. But isn't it something that we come together to worship? And every week I get told in a prophetic and a beautiful way through the singing and the preaching and the confession of faith and sin that my personal story is not really just about me. That my story gets wrapped up into a much bigger story than just my own individual narrative. And I get to go to church and and I get to be told that. Now, beyond that, I think, you know, reading Paul, reading a book like Colossians, um, prayer, you know, putting yourself under the spiritual mentorship of somebody who's further down the road. There, there are a lot of practical steps to that. For me, and this is the geeky side of me, all right, so I wouldn't impose this on anybody else. For me, that happened when I started to read Karl Barth. I mean, I, I read a theologian, and I read Barth and Calvin together, and they had, a, I mean, they, they, that's not... I don't necessarily encourage that, right? But for me, that, that, that was like, I, I, wow, Jesus is much bigger. Whatever conception I had of Jesus, it needs to be bigger. And I say that to myself a lot even now. Whatever view of Jesus you have, you have, and I have, it needs to be bigger. It's not big enough. And that's what we're going to tell ourselves till the day we die. It's not big enough. Your, your Christology cannot be big enough. It cannot be profound enough because it's everything. It's everything. Yes. Okay, so I'm so glad you asked that. That's a clarifying question. Very good. So what are the sacraments? Um, what did you say? What are they? Why are they important? Are they important? Why are they important? Um, sacrament is a term, our English word sacraments, built off of a Latin term sacramentum, which just means simply mystery. And that's a controversial term. Some people don't like sacrament. I grew up in a, in a world, an ecclesiastical world, a church world, where sacrament was kind of a bad word because it sounded too Roman Catholic, you know, something like that. Um, 
I, for me, and this is another, like I mentioned with Brian, this is another real debate in the history of the church. But the Protestant tradition, which your church is a part of, and that stream of Redeemer is, has traditionally understood there to be two sacraments, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, and I genuinely believe that both of those have significant value and that they're central to what it means to be a Christian and to enjoy the living presence of God in our midst. I mean, in baptism, right, whenever I am baptized or whenever I view someone else's baptism, right, and that's why it's a, it's a public ritual. In my own tradition, don't tell, don't tell anybody I said this or I'll deny it. But in my own tradition I'm in now, they sometimes do private family baptisms. I don't like that. I just don't like that. Don't tell anybody I said that. Um, it's a public as- um, ingredient aspect of the Christian faith. Do you know why? Because whenever I see, now I'm in a world that baptizes children, hope that's okay, but if, if it's a child um, or if it's an adult that's being baptized, you know what I'm being reminded of? I'm being reminded that I've gone under those waters as well, and I've been claimed I've been marked. I've been set aside as God's own. If, you, if John Calvin walked in here tonight, or Martin Luther, I mean, as different as those two could be theologically, if either one of them in here walked in, in this room tonight, that'd be, we'd stop. <laughs> but, but if they did, we, um, we, and we asked them, as pastors, what do you think is one of the more important things for you to do as a pastor? I think we'd be shocked. But I do believe that both of them would answer probably first out of the gate. They'd say, we need to remind our people that they've been baptized. We need to remind them that they've been claimed in the waters. And that they've gone into death and been raised again to life in Jesus. And that that's who they are. That's their identity. And then in communion, in the bread and the wine, I know it's kind of hocus pocus crazyville. I get it. But I genuinely believe that in that bread and in that wine, God, by his spirit, communicates the very body and blood of Jesus to his people. And we feed on him. He ministers to us with the word that's preached and with the word that we, want, we see in the bread and the wine and that we ingest. Um, so those are, those are life-giving. And, I, I, you know, I, I'm very careful to, to apply my own story to other people, right? It's like like marriage stuff, you know. I, I, you know, my marriage is unique. I got my own kind of problems in my marriage. We're still working it out, kind of stuff. And for me to say, you know, this is what we do in our marriage. You, you, marriage is just too weird. You got to work. Go, I, I would be a horrible pastor. That's why I teach in divinity school. Like, what would be my marriage counseling? Go work it out. I don't know. God bless you. You got to work that thing out, right? Um, so I I don't want to impose my own story on you, but I will say. But my wife and I, we've been married 15 years now, and we've, we come out of, a real, out of a fundamentalist background, real fundamentalism, not just you know, the people to your right, but real fundamentalism. And I'm grateful for my upbringing. I'm very grateful for that. But we, I was a youth pastor. I was in a, it was a big Fortune 500 kind of church, a lot of public profile sort of thing. And, and, um, and we, were, we, were our, we were just a mess. I mean, my wife and I, we'll, we're very, we, we, just, we, just, we brought in all these kind of expectations on one another, spiritually, we just began, it just, we were a mess. And then we left Greenville, South Carolina, two years of marriage, and went over to Scotland, where I was doing my postgraduate work. And, and I was already drawn to the liturgical tradition, right? I was always already drawn to a tradition that had set prayers and regular practice of communion. I was drawn to that. So I know that's not everybody, but I was. 
And my wife was too. And so we said, we're going to go to the local Anglican church. And my wife will tell you that part of the healing process that happened in her own soul, and me too, was weekly taking of communion. Because in that moment, our identities were being shaped again about who we were. You know where we were? We're beggars on our knees coming every week saying, we're hungry and we're hungry for Jesus. And we want him to feed us. And my wife will tell you one of the greatest experiences in her life is being on her knees in this stonewalled, old, 16th century Anglican church with Betty Blue-haired next to us, old, old lady right there, right? And here we are, and there's Richard Balkum, probably one of the premier New Testament scholars in the world, and there's another, the- and there we all are, equalized at the foot of the cross. Betty Blue-hair, Richard Balkum, us, we're all just there coming to be fed, and that... That, sh- that has shaped us. And that's a good. I don't want to apply that story to anyone. I mean, that's our story. Um, so when you ask me, are the sacraments important? I think that they're not. They're, they're, they're crucial. Uh, they're central to the shaping of our own identity. Yeah. Griffin. Yeah, you know, there's certain, there, there, certain aspects of Jesus' life and ministry are episodic. In other words, they're, they're, they're irreducible. They're not transferable to sort of larger patterns of X, Y, or Z. What's happening in Gethsemane, for example, I would think is something that's unique. It's not transferable. Um, and it's unique to that particular moment. And it reveals, I think, something to us that, that from a humanity standpoint should be quite encouraging, and that is Jesus had to look full bore into the wrath, the potential wrath of God poured out on him, and he would prefer not to do that. But, nevertheless, thy will be done and not mine, right? So that, 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 that is a very unique sort of encounter that we have there. I think what gives us the assurance from a standpoint of the book of Hebrews and say Romans 8 and anywhere that talks about the intercessory role of Jesus, what gives us an assurance that Jesus will be heard, this is Paul's logic, is uh, the resurrection of the dead. Jesus has been raised. He has been confirmed in his resurrection, Romans chapter 1, right? He was confirmed as the Son of God in the resurrection of the dead. It's the resurrection of the dead that was God's imprimatur, God's stamp to say everything that he was saying, everything that he did, his living and his dying, that was according to our will together. Because we don't talk about multiple wills in the life of God. This is another theological point. That was a big controversy. Isn't that crazy? These things there were controversies in the 4th and even early 5th century. How many wills of God is there? It's Christian orthodoxy to claim there is only one divine will. Jesus does not have his own will apart from the Spirit, apart from the Father. There is only one divine will. Um, and, I, and I think Gethsemane kind of t- taps into that as well. But theologically speaking, I think it's the resurrection of the dead, Jesus being raised and seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's another significant claim, by the way, about Jesus' divinity. No one in the Bible, and even in the intertestamental literature, and you've read some of this, Griffin, even in the intertestamental literature, no one gets to sit on the, th- in the, throne, on the throne room of God. That space is unique to God. 
And here is Jesus occupying that space. What that says is we cannot speak about the identity of God without including conversation about the identity of Jesus as well. That's that Trinitarian logic. So that's my sense on that. But I'll, I'll give some more thought to that, actually. I think that's the resurrection of the dead is central there. And the sharing of one divine will. Yeah, the son's not praying something that's not in accord with the father. That's actually a really good question. And I don't think I'm going to have all that satisfactory of an answer, to be honest with you. But I do think at the basic level, from a Trinitarian perspective, we do pray to the Father by the Spirit in the name of Jesus. I think that's basic sort of prayer 101 Trinitarian out the gate. But does that mean that it's inappropriate to make prayers addressed to other members of the Trinity, again, recognizing that they share a common will and a common essence? There's only one divine essence, and they're all um, equally sharing in that. And my sense is that that, that is appropriate. Um, I do think that, th that one can run dangers there and one needs to be careful, because I do think there are aspects of the Christian faith that can highlight one member of the Trinity to the exclusion of the others, and that runs into its own kind of problems, but I do think that it's, it's legitimate um, to make prayers addressed to individual members of the Trinity, but I think our basic patterns of prayer are to the Father by the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Now, patterning our prayers after Jesus, like John 17, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm actually more inclined to say that we pattern our prayers the way in which Jesus patterned his own, and that was on the basis of the book of Psalms. Um, I mean, I think Jesus' instincts were to pray the prayer book of Israel, and that's the Psalter. And I do, it's kind of crazy, we're talking about prayer tonight, we haven't brought the Psalms up once, but the Psalms are ready-made prayers and, sh and gives us a kind of shape and a structure to a prayer life that meets us in all the various vicissitudes of life, on the mountain and drowning in the pool, standing outside the pool dripping wet, having just been saved, searching for wisdom, needing a king. I mean, it's, it covers the gamut. No, I think if, if, I had to, if I had to pick one book of the Bible to go to an island with, uh, that probably would be it. Yeah. And Habakkuk. I'd probably take that one too. <laughs> are there more? Oh, there are a lot more. Okay, bring it. Yes, sir. Probably something like that, actually. <laughs> and please let it be. Um, I mean, on, a base, on the basic level of what we read, for example, in the Gospel of John, whether it's Romans 8, whether it's Hebrews, his intercession has to do primarily with mediating to the Father the atoning work that he's done on our account. In other words, he's... he's and I, again, this is, this is human language that we're using to kind of talk about something that's beyond us. But 
but he's, he's, claiming, he's claiming us as his own. And he's reminding the Father, and again, I don't like that because it's not the Father needs to be reminded, but he's reminding the Father that we're his and that he's made the atoning work, um, effect, he's, he's, he's made it effectual for us. But I have to imagine that it goes infinitely beyond that. And I don't really know how to describe it. Um, you know, what his prayers are, don't, don't get, you know, he blew it again, don't get him this time. I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I'd rather doubt it's as, you know, sort of jejun as that. But I, but I don't know. No, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling with language on this because I think the, our language just fails us. I came off of a week, my poor students, I taught a class over June, and I bored them to tears telling them about this because I was in the middle of a week-long Sanford event with colleagues around Sanford. We read through Dante's Divine Comedy together. Great experience. And as you move from hell all the way up into the Paradiso, one of the things you begin to observe is that Dante's language is incapable of expressing the, of the ineffable, the indescribable. But yet he does it in such a profound way. But he's, he is cognizant that he can't describe what it is that he's experiencing. He's also cognizant, by the way, when you think about music, as Dante rises up into the, realm, the higher realms of heaven. Oh, that's kind of weird and medieval. I, I, I have my issues with that. But I'm just saying, as Dante's writing of the realm, realm, rising the realms of heaven, Music becomes indescribable as well. These are chord structures, melodic lines, librettos that I can't communicate to you all anymore. Now, when I was in the lower parts of hell, they were singing the Te Deum and the Gloria. I mean, songs I know, I could sing right along. But when I got up higher and I was around the throne, near the throne of God where Christ is exalted, I, I don't know what that is. I can't explain the music that I'm hearing anymore. So, I, you know, I don't know. This is, we're entering into the very mysterious life of God. But I do think... On one side, we can say clearly that he is claiming the, he's claiming the effects of his redemption for us. He's claiming the effects of his own obedience and his goodwill for us. And I think that's at the core of it. It's salvific. But I am sure that it is infinitely beyond that. It's hard, very, I mean, it's a great question. I don't, I don't know. It's profound, isn't it? You know, Thomas Aquinas um, I've got a colleague who has a Thomas Aquinas shirt says, the original deep fat friar. That's what they were. Anyway, yeah. Beckwith has that shirt. Um, you know, Aquinas writes to Summa Theologica in the, in the, four, in the 13th century. Um, one of the greatest theological achievements in the history of the church. He's three months from finishing, has a vision, a beatific vision. A Dante kind of vision. And he stops writing. So I'm done. I won't write anymore. Because his experience was so profound that he said anything that I write is just it's drivel. <laughs> That's a true story from, from Aquinas. It's powerful, isn't it? I mean, and, 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 and if you ever read Aquinas, you realize this is probably the, one of the finest tuned theological minds the church has ever known. Whether you agree with him or not. Just the acuity of mind is absolutely impressive. And he says, I'm done. It's drivel. So, I mean, your question taps into something that I think is profound and mysterious. But whatever's going on should give us hope. In other words, if you hear all that and you go, ah, right, well, maybe. But the other side of it should be confidence and hope. Because whatever that is, he's there for us. And I know on the basis of the revealed word that he's there for us. So in the profoundness of the mysterious inter-Trinitarian communion of God with himself forever, 
He has us in mind, and he's for us. I mean, that's, 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 the, that's the big news. That's the big news. I saw that hand. How we live in community? So the question is, I'm not, I've not been repeating these. Um, the question is, how does, how does the um, intercession of God on our account affect our understanding of community? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it shapes the way in which we view the others, doesn't it? That, that's, I think that's probably at, at, at the core level what we're getting at. It shapes our view of ourselves, but it also shapes our view of the other. Um, and that... And, you know, this is hard for me to say because I, I, I got people I don't like too, right? Um, that means that the, the, the person that really just drives you bananas in your community group that won't stop talking. I was in a community group once and had, remember, a, a couple in there and they just could not stop. It was just all the time. Right? <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, Jesus prays for them. <laughs> loves them. Loves them. Right, gave his life for them, right? Um, I, you know, I wish I could say I was sort of superhuman in that. I'm not. But I, um, I think it shapes our view of the other. And that is God has created space in himself for communion with us by his son. And that includes people that we don't like. It also creates an appreciation for the other and for difference and differentiation whether it's race or whether it's gender or I mean, just it creates a space for us to appreciate otherness um, and to come to terms with the fact that it would not be a nice world it would not be a, our christian community would be deficient if everyone were just like me it'd be deficient um, so i th- i think it has profound com- implications for how we understand community and what it means to be in community one with another and and I, that sounds all very airy fairy to be honest with you because i'm i mean i've I'm around Christian community enough to know that the blessing of Christian community is community and the curse of Christian community is community. I know that's just, you know, it's all, we all talk, we did, I'm going to tell them myself. When I was in St. Andrews, Scotland, I was all into the, I want to have a sort of Christian community experience. I mean, we were in a small group of people that we love. We're going to see them this, this uh, Sunday night in Carolinas. People that we love. And let, let's, let's all kind of live together and barbecue together and we'll do Bible study. It's going to be great. And, and my, wife was, my wife is an introvert. She's much more private than I am. I tend to be a little bit more extroverted. And she's like, no, 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 no. Not doing that, not doing that. And then our final summer, really because of financial necessity, we're like, we got to live with somebody. We got we to split this rent. So our Christian community thing is going to happen. And and my wife was like, okay, I'm ready for this. Let's do it. So we had a good friend. He teaches theology out at Biola. Now, just a good guy. Matt moves in with us, and we're living together. And and my wife is just handling it swimmingly. I'm a week into it, and I'm like, I hate this. This is awful. Um, So all, all to say, I recognize that Christian community is a complicated thing. And we can sometimes idealize it. But... I do think that understanding of selfhood and otherness as it relates to the fact that we are all living members of the body of our Lord, it helps us to appreciate differentiation. And let me say one more thing, because I'm on it here. It also will guard us from gift projecting, I think. 
In other words, you have that one thing that God has put on your heart that you are passionate about, and you cannot understand why everybody else isn't as passionate as you are, and you're just angry about it. All right. I think, you know, recognizing the fact that God, the, the, the body and the gifts that God gives his people, the passions that he gives them, the talents that he gives them, the vision that he gives them for creating whatever, and, and the cultural desires that they have for X, Y, or Z, I mean, support it and embrace it, but also recognize, you know, we're, we're different on this, and we need to be careful about um, sort of gift projecting on others as well. Okay, there was a hand over here that's been up a while, and I keep, and then I'll go over here. Yes, ma'am, you. I have to. Th- I need to be careful how I answer this because um, Jesus demonstrates. I mean, I think you make the point well. He demonstrates that he can- he prays for those that are that are not his own. Forgive them; they don't know what they're doing. Um, so again, I mean, I, I would. I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I assume that that's probably the case. I mean, this will depend a lot on your views on election and how election relates to the general called. Um, offer the gospel that goes out to everyone, but recognizing that it will land by God's grace and spirit on, on those that he calls. And, um, and how all that works in the eternal prayer life of God, I mean, that, that's, um, you know, I think that's a dynamic reality, I think. I don't think that's something that's static. I think it's dynamic. Um, but I also re- recognize, and you think about this from the standpoint of the, I'm an Old Testament guy. I like the New Testament. I'm glad it's in there, but I really like the Old Testament. Um, and you think about God's care for the nations. Again, I don't, I don't know how to articulate this in the sort of the intercessory prayer life of, of Jesus. I, mean, I don't know. But in the patterns of God's relating to the world, he cares about Nineveh and Jonah, right? He sends a prophet to them. Um, you have in Isaiah, it says that eunuchs and foreigners will become priests to God. That's crazy talk. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is not outside of the purview of God's care and concern in the world. God calls Cyrus in the book of Isaiah a Messiah, a Mashiach. I mean, that's Cyrus, the king of Persia. Um, So, I mean, we can see that God's gracious care, technically this is called common grace, but God's gracious care for the world isn't necessarily always redemptive. And this is complicated, I recognize it. But his gracious care for the world is a recognition that it's all his. And he cares about what's going on in the south of Sudan and in the mountains of Peru and in China and in the Middle East. That's in these Islamic countries that are not Christian, like these islands of Indonesia where there is no Christians, right? That's not outside the purview of the lordship of Jesus and his care and concern. So do I, I, do I locate that in the prayer life of God? I locate it in the concern and the passion of God for his world. So I, I guess so, yeah. That's a good question. Are we done? One more. One more. I think I... There it is.
I'm not good at this. I'm just to tell you, I, I mean, I, this is me just being candid and maybe it's the beer at work now. Um, you know, about the beer? Um, he, the question was, how do we relate, and, and correct me if I'm not articulating this right, but how do we sort of relate our pursuit of an intimate life with God, the experiential side, from just the normal everyday existence of the ordinary means of grace? Is that what you're asking? Okay. Um, I struggle with this. I mean, I was just back in the back with my mom and dad during our little break saying, you know, the dangers for someone like me is I talk about this stuff all the time and, you know, trying to think about the way in which it intersects with my daily pattern of life. I mean, that, that's, that's a, I'm, in, I'm in a very dangerous position because, and pastors are too, because God is our business. This is what we do for a living. So I, I pay the bills in a God way. That's how I do it. So I, I teach Bible and I mean, it's, it's, it's dangerous, I think. Um, so I think about that kind of question a lot, and I don't know. I mean, it, you know, patterns, patterns are different on this. I can tell you that there were moments of time, of time in my own spiritual existence, there were sweet seasons where my communion with God was palpable and profound. It was all the time. It was prayer life was not a moment, it was an existence. I mean, I remember moments like that, patterns like that. And I know that there are patterns where it's like, I just, praying is like a brass ceiling. It's like chalk in the mouth. Um, I think that's a part of the maturing process of a believer, is to believe in the saving promises of God. This is what I'm learning from the prophets. It's what I'm learning from Hebrews. It's what I'm learning from the book of Psalms. That the challenge in the life of the believer is to believe in the saving promises of God even when my current experience is yelling at me that that can't be true. And I think that means for some of us that we remember those mountaintop experiences with Jesus and that just doesn't seem to be happening anymore. Um, you know, so I, I, the, the question that you're asking for me is, a, is there's, a lot of, there's a lot of sensitivity to that because you maybe have those memories as well and either for laziness, I mean, it's not just, it's, I, can, I can create this to be, and now when I pray, it's all difficult. Some it's just lazy, slothful, don't want to do it, rather watch TV. I mean, whatever you want to call it. I mean, just life, right? Um, you know, I think that there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's patterns and there's seasons to these things. And if you read, for example, any of the journals from what I think of are some of the best Examples of people who live these deep, experiential, reformed encounters with Jesus, like Jonathan Edwards or David Brainerd. Or, I mean, when I was in my early 20s, I just cut through the life and, mem and remains of, I mean, the, the memoir and remains, which was kind of a funny thing. You're like, is there a bone in there or something? But the memoirs and the remains of Robert Murray McShane, I mean, I just cut through that stuff. Loved it. The Puritans, give me more, more, more. But if you read something like David Brainerd, and you actually read his journal, which, by the way, when Jonathan Edwards published that journal, it became the catalyst for the modern missionary movement. It's incredible. And he died. You talk about a movie. This is like a, a um, one of those, who, who does the notebook? Um, what, what, what? Spark. You talk about a Nicholas Sparks movie? 
David Brainerd and Jerusha Edwards. There's a Nicholas Sparks movie, right? I mean, this is a guy that wants to be a missionary. He is passionate for Jesus. He contracts tuberculosis in Jonathan Edwards' house. Jerusha, Jonathan Edwards' daughter, loves David Brainerd, wants to be with David Brainerd, nurses him in his sickness, sees him to his death. Never, they never get married. She contracts tuberculosis like a month later, and she dies too. You can go to the tree in Northampton, Massachusetts right now and see the big tombstones of David Brainerd and Jerusha Edwards side by side. That's, that's a Sparks movie right there, right? That's good stuff. But if you read David Brainerd's journal, it's like one day he is like, Wah! I mean, to the point where you go, God, come on, man, tone it down, man. And the next day... I mean, it almost seems like he's bipolar or schizophrenic. It's like, I, I, I'm a worm, I'm less than a man, da, 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 whatever. You know, I, and I think that marks just the patterns of our existence when it comes to this life with God. And that's why a book like the Psalms is so wonderful. There's a whole book of Psalms that authorizes for us in an inspired way what it means to live a complicated life in the presence of God, mountaintop, lament. I don't even like you today, God. I mean, saying that in the book of Psalms, I don't even like you. You don't tell the truth, uh, but I'm going to praise you forever, right? I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, I mean the book of Psalms is, is profound in that way. So I think the disciplined engagement and enjoyment of the ordinary means of grace are the gateway to some of those special encounters, not necessarily the other way around. That's my sense. And there's a sense in which I think we're called to something stable because, again, the danger with that kind of piety is it can become a turning into the self and recognizing that the quality of my faith is about my faith and not the object of my faith. And I think what the ordinary means of grace do to us is they force us to turn our eyes outward and look again to him. Okay. Done. Join me in thanking Mark Jeanette for being with us. Thank you so much. And thank you all so much for being here, and thank you to Avondale Brewery. Uh, make sure you close out, because you'll get like...